This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Pete, is it fair to say that you love planes? More than anything. (laughs) (laughs) My girlfriend wouldn't appreciate me saying that. You could call Pete Muntean a plane person. He reports on aviation for CNN. His parents were both pilots. His mom flew in air shows. When I got him on the line the other day, he'd just gotten out of the cockpit. He'd been flying upside down. He does aerobatics. That doesn't scare the hell out of you? No, it doesn't really scare me. It kind of builds your confidence, actually, because you know what the airplane is truly capable of, which is pretty awesome. Given how much flying means to you, I'm sort of curious how closely you've been following the story of what happened with Joseph Emerson. Um, I've been following it super closely, and it's kind of a, a sad and, and tragic tale. We are going to turn to a very scary story here. The FBI is investigating an off-duty pilot's apparent attempt to crash a passenger plane. Even if you don't know Joseph Emerson's name, you probably know his story. Struggles with mental health, no sleep, and even the use of psychedelic mushrooms. Tonight, we are learning new details surrounding the Pleasant Hill off-duty pilot accused of trying to crash a flight headed for San Francisco. It all comes this as- all happened back in October. Emerson was catching a ride in the cockpit of an Alaska Airlines jet when he suddenly sprung to his feet and tried to cut the engine. Other pilots were able to subdue him just in time. And Emerson walked into the uh, cabin of the airplane, so closes the cockpit door behind him, tells the flight attendant, you need to cuff me. I'm going to do something bad if you don't cuff me. We now know why he did this. He'd taken psychedelic mushrooms. It was connected to this depression he'd had for a while. And crucially, he wasn't treating that depression. Yeah, and pilots are really in a bind. Yeah, why wasn't he treating the depression? Like, why? There's this stigma in aviation where you essentially must self-disclose to the FAA any mental disorder of any sort. And if you self-disclose anxiety, depression, etc., then you could theoretically lose your medical from the FAA. Your medical clearance. So you can't fly. Meaning that you're grounded. Yeah, you can't fly. Were pilots like you, like, talking about this case after it broke? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm in a group chat with a bunch of friends who are airline pilots. Friends of mine know Emerson. And they describe him as this great guy, like, you know, a real sweetheart. And that's why this is so sad. The agencies that regulate flying have been talking, too. In the last few weeks, the Federal Aviation Administration and the National Transportation Safety Board have struggled to respond. The NTSB just held their first ever summit on mental health in the airline industry. I think the only silver lining of this sad moment, this sad episode, is that it thrust this conversation into the limelight. And never before has the the mental health of pilots been talked about so openly. 
Yeah, do you think that this story might actually change things? I hope so. Today on the show, why it is so hard for stressed out pilots to get help, and why that may be making all of us less safe. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Can we talk about the systems that are in place that restrict what pilots can and can't do to take care of their mental health? Like, if I want to fly a plane, how often do I need to be checked out by a doctor or even just fill out a form talking about my mental health? So there are a few different layers when it comes to getting a medical certificate. To be an airline pilot, you have to hold what's called a first-class medical. And that means that you need to see an FAA doctor Federal Aviation Administration, so official person. A designee of the FAA. They're sort of appointed by the FAA. It could be someone who's like a family physician, but also does this sort of on the side to to help pilots. And so um, you need to see an FAA-designated doctor every, if you're 40 and under, every year. Wow. If you're over that, every six months. At 40, it becomes every six months. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. And so, um, so they're doing simple things like, Having you read an eye chart, having you take your blood pressure, um, you know, they listen to your heartbeat, they see if you're breathing okay. But then there is this long form that the medical examiner and you go through and you essentially disclose any time you've been to a doctor in that last period since you've previously gotten your medical. Like literally I went on June 6th to this doctor and in June 21st to this other one? Yeah. And so the line in specifically... In the form, it says pilots are required to self-disclose, quote, mental disorders of any sort, depression, anxiety, etc. And so the problem here is that if you are caught lying about that to the FAA, you could face five years in jail or a quarter million dollar fine. Is there wiggle room here? Like if I want to go to couples counseling with a social worker or, I don't know, take ADHD meds, and I just don't kind of mention that. Is that okay, or do we not know? Because it's like you're just kind of going for it and seeing what happens. The reality is that in order to fly, a lot of pilots lie. And so that's kind of the the option. Like, you either tell the truth or and lose your medical, or you don't tell the truth, lie, 
and continue on flying. So it's a, it's a really tough position. Once you lose your first-class medical, it can take years to get it back. Pete says that means there are just not a lot of incentives for a pilot to tell the truth if they're struggling. Another problem is that it's a little unclear which illnesses will get your medical clearance revoked. We just know it's a lot of them. You know, when I was a kid, like, the diagnosis du jour was for ADD and ADHD. And so if you really have any history of taking Adderall, for example, the FAA would deny your medical. Whoa. Um, And so now think of the fact that there is a 65 mandatory retirement age for airline pilots. A lot of pilots will age out and the industry will need to rely on new younger pilots, but they may be disqualified even before they get to the gate, essentially, before they get out the gate, knowing that they have this history and they they can't apply for a medical. So now it becomes this workforce issue. And this is something that the the head of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Hamadi, has told me, this is a this is a problem for the future of aviation. Like if we have all these kids who have, well, now adults who have taken Adderall or have been treated for ADD or ADHD, and they can't get a medical. So it's a huge problem, and, and it will keep people from becoming pilots. But do we know people? Have people stood up? I'm sort of curious. Like, have people stood up and been like, yes, I went to a psychiatrist. Come at me, brah. Yeah. At this NTSB summit just the other day, um, first time that they've ever held something like this. NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board. Yep. A few real notable pieces of testimony. One was a pilot named Troy Merritt. He is a relatively young guy. He's a first officer at United Airlines. And he, to get treatment for depression and anxiety, grounded himself and sought the apparatus, what is called a special issuance medical, to get the blessing of the FAA to be getting treated for mental health. So he did stand up. Yeah. He was like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be above board. Well, if you go through the special issuance process, so this other option, which is like you tell the truth, you essentially give up your medical, and then you go through this process of a new approval uh, from the FAA, it's not a rubber stamp kind of process. This is something that, as one aviation medical examiner describes it to me, an incredible morass of paperwork. We're talking like a years-long process sometimes like four, five, six years, and you're paying for extra tests, psychological evaluations, et cetera, from special FAA doctors out of pocket. So some people are paying eight, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 just to get the approval from the FAA. And in the meantime, they're not working. Right. Yeah, I think one pilot said, like, he started taking antidepressants, started feeling better six weeks later, but it took three years to get all the paperwork done? Yeah, and, and this one pilot described it like it would have avoided the worst couple years of his life. If the barriers weren't there, he would have gotten around the worst two years of his life, he said. How incredible is that? It sounds like you would not defend this policy. <laughs> Does it seem like I'm biased? I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I want to be impartial, and but it's hard when you hear the pain that pilots have gone through when you hear experts in their field when it comes to medicine who also have an aviation background talk about just the incredible bureaucracy that you get caught in if you do fess up to the FAA. 
when you think about the future of aviation, which I care about incredibly, you know, I just, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of sit on the sidelines and just report on it. This is something I just really care about. After the break, how one pilot's last words are helping motivate officials to act. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As we spoke, there was one story that Pete Muntean wanted to make sure he told me. He'd heard it at that NTSB summit on pilot mental health that he went to the other day. To him, this story is what gives the pilots fighting for some kind of change here their moral clarity. Just a warning, this story does talk about suicidal ideation. There was a 19-year-old student pilot. He was going to the University of North Dakota, which is a big aviation university. Um, And he was a seemingly, like, loved aviation from the moment he was born, really into transportation. His, His parents were you know, educated and invested in his uh, aviation upbringing. His mom's a doctor. Um, And they had no idea that he was depressed until he sent them a text message saying, "Um, I'm about to crash this plane (gasps) deliberately. And if you can do anything for the future of aviation, please let this incident bring to light the need to change the FAA's mental health standards. Did he crash the plane? And died by suicide by airplane. And they found a letter afterwards saying, if there's anything you can do for me, get the FAA to change their rules on pilots seeking help with their mental health. I know it would change a lot of things for the better, It would help a lot of people out. Love you, John. Well, that's pretty clear. Like, remarkably clear. Yeah. And, you know, his parents have been meeting with Congress. And, you know, his John Hauser is his name. And he died in this crash in 2021. Um, This is a huge bureaucratic 
alphabet soup and change does not happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, the FAA announced that it's putting together this special committee that could suggest changes to pilot mental health rules. That seems like it's going to take a while and it's just not the fastest path to moving forward here. Is there any other way? I mean, it's so bureaucratic, right? Like it's a a committee to suggest rules and there's there's no it won't lead to rules in the immediate they have no power right there's a clock ticking on when they're supposed to make these suggestions which is by the end of march 2024 but there's no immediacy and it's really up to the faa to make these changes and in some ways congress which can sometimes function as the board of directors of the faa and so they could compel the faa to make a change here and any member of Congress who would really um, care about this issue has has even more ammo now after this NTSB summit. But it's all on the FAA now. The ball is entirely in their court. Are there any signs from them of what they might want to do here? Like, I'm just sort of wondering, the people in charge of the FAA, what are they saying publicly? Are they mostly keeping mum? There is a new administrator at the FAA, new head of the FAA. His name is Mike Whitaker. Um, he was just sworn in not long ago. And we know from the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Hammondy, that she has met with um, Whitaker and he listened uh, about the issues and he has said publicly um, in a press conference, cameras rolling, we may be a bit outdated here and we may need to look at redoing this. So there are some positive signs um, and new leadership definitely helps, but it is still kind of pushing a boulder up a hill. I mean, it's it's going to take some time and doing. And the question is, and pilots are sort of skeptical of this rulemaking committee, is it going to make it just easier for pilots to report? Are, is that what they're going to say? Or are they going to make it easier for pilots to report and seek treatment? Because there is this huge laundry list of medications that one cannot take uh, per the FAA. You know, every pilot, and I do this when I fly, like every pilot does sort of a self-assessment, like you would sort of walk around and pre-flight the airplane. Like you see pilots on the ground doing this, like making sure that the airplane's okay and everything's removed that you need to and things are in the right spot. Um, do you do a pre-flight on yourself? Hmm. Like, am I okay to fly? There's an acronym for it. It's called I'm safe. And <laughs> and one of them is, you know, the E is emotion. The M is medication. And so to make sure that you're not, you know, taking anything that would adversely affect your ability to make decisions or judgment or assess risk. Uh, at, in the end of the, at the end of the day, flying is all just a risk assessment. Um, so, you know, it, it may be, and some suggested this at this summit, it may just be worth a way to look at the pilots just self-certifying. Take the FAA out of the equation and pilots self-certify their health when it comes to their mental health. That would be a huge change. That would be huge. And I'm not sure any group that has that kind of control is eager to let go of it. It just feels like yeah. it would be a real trust fall with the pilots. It's a tough rub, for sure. In a pilot's ideal world, how does a mental health screening work? Is there a mental health screening? I think maybe. 
maybe the answer is something like um, the FAA expands its aperture on what should be allowed when it comes to treatment so that pilots can seek therapy on their own, that they can they can take things that are readily prescribed for depression and anxiety like SSRIs. The FAA does make it so that you can take some, but it is a really narrow list and you also have to get a special issuance, which we know is a lot of paperwork and a lot of and could be a lot of hardship. So I think there there is definitely a happy medium to find and now it's just on the FAA to figure it out. And the question is whether or not they will find something satiating to the industry. I mean, I think the balance is you want pilots to be able to get treated for issues and not sweep them under the rug to end up in a Joseph Emerson-like situation. You talk about Joseph Emerson, that pilot who had a breakdown on the Alaska Airlines flight. What's interesting to me about his story is that I think you could see it a couple different ways. You could see it as like, this is why mentally ill people shouldn't be in the cockpit. This guy had a breakdown. He'd been trying to mess around with some drugs to make himself feel better. And like, no one wants that to happen on their flight. Or you could see it as like, if this guy had access to treatment, maybe this never would have happened. And I my hunch is that most people are seeing it the former way. They're seeing yeah. it as like, this guy needed treatment. That's how I see it. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Like, I'm not sure if the alphabet soup, if the FAA and the NTSB, like, where they're coming down. And in the end, like, I guess they're the ones who need to make the decision. Emerson's wife spoke as he got out of prison the other day, essentially, as he was awaiting um, awaiting sort of a, a word from court. Um, and she said, you know, maybe the silver lining in this is that this has brought the issue of pilot mental health to light. And I think that is what people sort of see the case as. Is It's mostly as something that shows that the system works um, in that there are two pilots in the cockpit and Emerson wasn't able to do something drastic and was ultimately, you know, will get some help that he needs, but also shows how broken the system is and that he is, it was a cry for help. Do you think he'll ever fly again? The current sentencing is that he has to keep away from any aircraft by 30 feet. Wow. For now, at least. For now, he has to do that. So, you know, it. it do I think he'll fly again? I mean, probably not. It's, you know, it's a real, it, this is a guy who's devoted his entire adult life to aviation. So it's sad. But, um, you know, he's not getting thrown away in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah, he was initially charged with murder for everyone on the plane. He was charged with attempted murder, 80, 84 counts, one for every person on the airplane. And, and then ultimately a grand jury said mm, there should be misdemeanor, uh, you know, reckless endangerment charges. And so, you know, he his lawyers won there and and essentially laying out a case that said this is not a guy who wanted to kill people. This was a guy who was having it was in a dreamlike state, needed to get help and is going to get it now. Pete, I'm really grateful for your time and for you coming on the show. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. 
Pete Muntean is a pilot and a flight instructor. He's also a CNN correspondent who covers aviation and transportation. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. It's our membership program. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.